1 John 3, beginning in verse 11, says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word and tongue, but indeed, and in truth. And Father, we just humbly ask for the grace of your Holy Spirit now as we continue in our worship by opening your word, believing God that this is how you want to and will speak to us in this hour. So we pray that your Spirit's ministry would now speak to us through what you have already spoken here in your written word. Lord, prepare us and we pray that you would speak now by the power of your Spirit's ministry things to each and every one of our hearts, and we ask that expectantly in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, the Bible teaches us very clearly that God in his very essence is love, and not just love, but perfect and pure and the absolute deepest form of love. And so it would only be common sense then that to have an experience with God means to have an experience in a great way with this kind of love. The Bible tells us that as we experience God, that his love is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so the fruit of God's spirit, which the Bible says is love being produced within our hearts, means that we are, as we have an experience with God, going to have a greater love, A, for God himself, as well as a greater love for others. And I think it is very accurate to say that as Christians, one of the clearest, not the only, but one of the clearest and greatest characterizing marks of our lives should be love. It should be love. You know, we sing that song, they'll know that we are Christians by our love. And look, in our current world, there are many confused ideas now about what love is. Go with me, you can say a little further, there are many distorted ideas about what love is. And tragically, it's because we've reduced the idea of love to emotions, to feelings, to just things that resonate with desires happening within. So if I've had these particular desires resonating within me, that gives me the understanding, well, if I have these desires or these emotions, that that must be love. And look, love may include a degree of emotional feeling within. I'm not diminishing that. Emotions are something that God has given to us. And there is a component of love that involves emotions in a symptomatic result. But real love, biblically speaking, is not characterized by emotion foremost or desires foremost, but rather care for another's best interest and such care for another person's welfare that it yields a willingness to sacrifice in our actions for their best. And this is what our text is about this morning, properly exercising real or genuine love for one another. Remember the backdrop as we come into this next section here. John has just recently been showing the distinguishing marks between the only two different categories of people that God recognizes on this planet. And it has nothing to do with race, has nothing to do with ethnicity, has nothing to do with social class, has nothing even to do with male or female. The two categories that God recognizes foremost is children of God and he said last week, children of the devil. 
the spiritual condition in which people are in is the absolute most important thing to God. Children of God, of course, speaks of those who've received Jesus as Savior and Lord, and they have been born of God. They've had a spiritual conversion. They've come to know God personally, and now they are a child of God, having been adopted spiritually into his family and having a relationship with him. Children of the devil, as we saw last week identified, represent those who are still in their original condition from birth. And the Bible teaches that we are born as being created by God, but that we are not born as a child of God. That's something that must happen that we must become born of God to become a child of God, but that we start out biblically separated from God, that we're born sinful by nature because that's all Adam and Eve, the first two parents, could pass on to anyone. They had, had physical life, but they lost spiritual life. They lost capacity to have relationship with God. So we're all born spiritually dead and sinful by nature. We're inclined to do what's wrong, and we don't start out life with connection to God. So strongly does the Bible convey that, that God, not myself or anyone else, God himself uses the term that before a person has become a child of God and has been born again and has a relationship with Jesus Christ, the Bible actually identifies us in our original condition as actually children of the devil. Very strong language. But God doesn't want there to be a misunderstanding. I think it's purposely used that such a person is lacking spiritual life and they are still under the influence of the power of the devil, whether they recognize it or not, that that is their genuine spiritual condition. Now, John had just declared that will be evident, children of God versus children of the devil, by the fruit or the ongoing practice of a person's life, that that will be how that's identified. And John, as he was saying, that said, those who are still children of the devil, two things, he said, they will not practice righteous living, because they don't care about what's doing right, because the devil wants them to do what's wrong. And so they have no interest in living right. As well, John also said that another aspect of being a child of the devil still is that they do not have love in their lives as they should, that there's this lack of love within their heart, and that's because the devil has blinded them in a way whereby they love themselves more than anything else or more than anyone else for that matter. And John's point, in essence, we're going to see, is that there should be a clear delineating mark between a child of God and a child of the devil. In this category, there should be a whole lot more love in operation among God's people. Real love, genuine love. And in the love department, that should be a clear differentiating mark between a child of God and those who are not yet in relationship with him. That's why John says in verse 11 here in our text, for this message, he says, where this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we, God's people, we should love one another. So from their very beginning of Jesus calling people to follow him during his earthly ministry, the one message that was very clear from Jesus to those who would be his followers, he made it very evident both by his example as well as his direct teaching that we were called to love one another. And here again, this is the aged John. He's, he's beyond his 90s at this point in his life. And speaking from that vantage point, he says here, look, this is something we've heard from the beginning of our Lord's ministry. It's something that none of us should be confused about. This is one area where he made it very evident and clear that we are to love him. I think perhaps John himself was thinking maybe of John chapter 13, which he was used by the Spirit of God to record as well. In the Gospel of John, in John 13, it tells us this, that it was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew the hour had come for him to now leave this world and go back to the Father. And having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The idea there is he loved them in a way to show the full extent of his love. And it's at that point, we know John 13, that Jesus did what? He arose from the meal, and because no one was taking on the humble duty of washing someone's feet, which was a cultural thing that should have been done, it was a lowly task of humble servants, Jesus gets up from the table, our Lord, and he begins to wash the feet of all of his disciples in that dinner setting, showing them his love through what? 
kind, servant-hearted, humble care. And as Jesus begins to wash their feet, Jesus then spoke to them saying in light of that, you call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for so I am. If I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you, he said, an example that you should do as I have done. He then culminated that message by emphasizing his instruction connected to what he had just done to show his love by saying this, a new commandment I give to you that you now love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Jesus said, this is my command that you would love one another, and then he added something to that, making the command new and fresh. He says that you would love one another as I have loved you. In other words, using the example of the love that you've seen in me, the way I've displayed love, that you would now utilize that same type of love in expressing love to one another. And the importance of that, Jesus said, is that's what would display the reality of Jesus to the world around us. He said, all the world will know that you're my disciples, that you're my disciples, that you're my followers, and that I'm real by your love for one another. That is that the unsaved world, who's very cruel and selfish in the way that they treat one another, would look at the way that Christ followers love one another and humbly care for one another and express love, and they're devoted to one another, and they would say, you know what? This Jesus thing has got to be real because I've never seen people care about each other like that. And that they would look upon that kind of love and it would be a powerful testimony to the unsaved world. John 15, two chapters later, Jesus again said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And that's why John, no doubt, is declaring here in the 11th verse that there should never be any ignorance in this area. That's why John says there, look, this is the message. We've all heard it from the beginning. There may be certain things we can say as Christians, I don't know the Lord's will on this. I don't know God's will on that. And John says, this is an area where that can't be true because we've all heard this message loud and clear from our Lord Jesus from the very beginning. And to disregard this fundamental command of a Christian to love one another is to willingly ignore something that Jesus himself was very clear about and told us from the beginning. Now, important to, again, remember, as Jesus said to love one another, as John says here that we are called to love one another, he's using that Greek word agape there, which was a term in the Greek language to speak of the highest degree of love. The Greek language used multiple words to describe love. There was eros for romantic love and erotic love. There was, you know, phileo, which spoke of brotherly fondness and, and kind of a friendship type love. There was storge, which spoke of family love. And then there was this term agape, which spoke of the highest degree of love possible because it was an unconditional love of choice. It was a love that in no way was based upon feelings it wasn't based upon the condition of the other person who was the object of your love. It was not based upon or determined how they responded toward you when you exercised love towards them. It was a word that spoke of a decision to care about another person no matter what condition they're in or no matter how they treat you or how they relate to you, that you would willingly make a decision and a choice to love them and to want their best welfare and to care about them regardless of how they respond to you or how they have treated or may treat you. And look, this is the kind of love that God has towards us. God has agape love towards us. God never looked down on this earth, trust me when I tell you, and said, they are so adorable. And, and I mean, I mean, just look how nice they are. How could you not love them? I mean, yes, they mock me and spit in my face and disobey me. But there's, I mean, I just, I love, it had nothing to do with that. It's the fact that God in his very essence is love. 
He is the epitome of love, and God is so loving, he chooses to love humanity, regardless of our condition. That on my best day, I don't earn and make God love me more, and on my worst day, I don't make God love me less, because God loves us regardless. He chooses to love us in this decision of unconditional care towards us, despite how we relate to him, and it's the purest and deepest form of love possible, and it's a love of divine origin. Now, that is why as we experience God's agape love for us and have encounters with this God of love, that it is then and only then really that we can become a channel for that same supernatural agape love to flow through us towards one another. And it's as we experience God's love, we then can become a channel to express God's love. As God's love is poured into our heart by his Holy Spirit, and God does intend that we would express that kind of love, not phileo, not brotherly love, not, but that agape love, that unconditional love of choice and commitment to another person. That's what God wants us by the Spirit empowering us to express as we seek to, as he describes here in our text this morning, love one another. First John 4, he's going to say it this way, beloved... If God so loved us with that agape, we also ought to agape or love one another. If God showed us that kind of love, it only seems to be correct that we then should exercise that same love to others. Peter in his writing said, using the same word, love one another fervently with a pure heart. So knowing our Lord's message is that we should love one another, John builds, you might say, upon this thesis-type statement for this next section to drive home this point. He then gives a very strong example of what God's love would never do. And he's going to say what God's love in the next verse, he's going to say what God's love would never do is God's love would never ruin the life of another person for selfish reasons. Look what he says. He goes on in verse 12. Not as, he says, Cain, who was of the wicked one, the devil, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brothers were righteous. So he reminds his readers of the story of what? The first two earthly brothers that ever showed up on the planet, right? The sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel from Genesis chapter four. And though Cain should have loved his brother helped his brother, supported his brother as a healthy family. Instead, we know what Cain did, having rejected God's rulership over his life and not being in right relationship with God himself, he became deceived, he became cruel and cold-hearted and self-serving and embraced sinful living. And the Bible reminds us here in verse 12 that what Cain did was Cain, it says, verse 12, murdered his brother. Now, here's the very unique thing. That term that's used there, murdered his brother, is a term in the original language that speaks of how they would slaughter an animal by basically severing the juggler vein. And so what he's describing here, and it gives us insight to how he killed his brother. Now we know. The way that he actually killed his brother Abel, Cain seeing how they would slaughter an animal, they would sever the juggler vein to let it bleed out to offer a sacrifice unto God in worship for the blood atonement for sins and forgiveness. Seeing that, he took this perverse idea in his mind and selfishly used that very same cruel way to murder his own brother in cold-blooded murder by literally slitting his brother's throat and watching him bleed out and die. This is what's, what Cain did here, the Bible's telling us. And the Bible says, and why did he do such? Why did he murder him, verse 12 says? Two reasons. First of all, it says because he was of the wicked one. Of, the word literally means to be out of or from an origin of. And what it's describing is he was of or living as a child of the devil, as we talked about in our prior verses. He was not submitted to God. He was living under the spiritual influence, sadly, of the rulership of the devil, and that is what prompted him to actually murder his brother in that wicked way, much like the devil himself. You know, Jesus said, John chapter 8 and John chapter 10, speaking of the devil, Jesus said this of the devil. 
Jesus said the devil was a, listen, murderer from the beginning at the start of his rebellion. Jesus also went on to say in chapter 10 that the devil's activity was robbing and killing and destroying life, that is, putting an end to anything good, seeking to destroy anything good or healthy that God would bring about. The devil's agenda was always to selfishly and cruelly kill whatever God is giving life to, whatever good thing that God may be doing. The devil wants to ruin God's plan. The devil wants to destroy God's purposes. Anything God's trying to bring life to, the devil wants to destroy it. The devil wants to kill it and stop it in any way that he can. So to behave in the same way as a person is basically, the Bible says, behaving like the devil. To rob something that is good and of God or to seek to destroy lives by selfish and cruel actions is to behave like the devil or to behave like Cain himself was, acting in that way, being directed by the wicked one. And if we just think of what we think of in our own terminology, what murdering is, I mean, to murder someone is a selfish act to kill and to ruin their life. That's what murder is in its simplest form. It's a selfish act to kill and ruin a life. And so look, whenever you see lives being ruined, I can tell you what that is. It's called a work of the devil. It's a work of the devil. Whenever you see in a murderous way, and I'm not just talking literally alone, whenever you see someone selfishly acting in ways to ruin lives, that is a work of the devil, that the spirit of the devil is prompting that. And he says, secondarily, another reason that Cain murdered his brothers, not only that he was of the devil, but it says because Cain's works, notice he says, verse 12, were evil and his brother's works were righteous. And we know what happened from Genesis 4 there. Abel was approaching God, remember, in the right way. And God was favorably accepting Abel because he was bringing a sacrifice and he was approaching God the prescribed way, enjoying relationship with God. Cain, in his pride, refused to do that. Though we knew it was the right way to approach God, Cain, in his pride, he wanted to approach God on his own terms. He wanted to design God the way he wanted God to be. And he wanted God to accept him on his terms, letting him do whatever he wanted to do. And Cain was angered that God would not compromise, that God would not let him live according to his own human desires. So the presence of righteous Abel, his brother, who was in right relationship with God, was a constant source of reminder that Cain was wrong. And that irritated Cain, and it angered him to no end. And ultimately, Cain so despised his brother's life and his hatred grew that he wanted to eliminate the presence of his brother because he knew that could silence what God was trying to say to him. And so, therefore, this hatred developed, and it led to a murderous act. John chapter 3, Jesus said this, Everyone practicing evil hates the light and doesn't come to it lest his deeds should be exposed. And sadly, love for oneself and love for doing what is sinful in rebellion to God can ultimately culminate and lead people to do things to ruin the lives of other people. I mean, we have all tragically seen this. Some of us have witnessed, some of us have experienced this, that there are people who are willing to ruin the lives of others to live the life that they want to live selfishly and evilly. There are people, sadly, who are willing to destroy, like Cain, even their own family. There are people who will destroy their own family members and destroy their own families in cruel and heartless ways. And I tell you, folks, that's a work of the devil. This is a work of the devil just bringing indirect, unseen assaults against families and marriages that never characterizes what should be happening among God's family. God's family should not be doing such selfish things. As God's people, we should never become heartless enough to ruin the lives of others. And John's going to say here, not only is that wrong, but he's going to say it's hard enough as Christians navigating what it's like living in this world of unsafe people around us. Look what he says, verse 13. Do not marvel, my brethren, if the world out there hate you. So though it should be surprising to see hatred among God's family, 
That should make us marvel, right? When, if we ever see hatred and, and cruel treatment and people ruining each other's lives among those who call themselves God's family, if we see that going on, that should make us marvel. What in the world? How could that be happening? This is God's family. How could people be ruining each other's lives? But he said, it should not shock us if the world hates us as followers of Jesus. John's going to say in the fifth chapter, the whole world is under the sway, the directing influence of the wicked one. So the hatred of the devil toward God and toward his purposes is going to be manifested in the unsaved world that's under the influence spiritually of the devil himself. So you might say Cain's hatred of Abel and his actions to destroy his righteous brother's life because he's in right relationship with God is a picture of what goes on in the unsaved world. Cain just becomes a picturesque representation of the world's hatred towards Christians in right relationship with God. The influence of the wicked one in the world system produces an animosity towards Christians. It produces a hatred of those who are a part of the church. It yields hatred towards Christ and despisal of Christians, his followers. And so they hate what we represent. They hate what we desire to uphold in righteous living because they want sinful ways. And John really here again, he's just passing on some of the same wise insight that he received from Jesus directly when Jesus was walking on this earth. No doubt John heard Jesus say, John 15, Jesus declared this, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the world. I've chosen you out of the world. Jesus said, this is why the world hates you. So John's saying, this isn't my idea. I heard Jesus tell us this. And so now John's just passing this on to the next generation of Christians. And the fact is, we will continually, because we've been taken out of the world system and spiritually we're now living for a different kingdom, we will continuously draw animosity from the unsaved world. We'll continue to draw opposition from the unsaved world. And therefore, it's essential that we recognize who's against us and why, and that we're able to see and to understand who our enemies are that want to destroy what we stand for so that we can be on guard against enemy attack and that we can realize how important it is for us to hold the line spiritually and to hold the line morally, to take a stand for righteousness despite the hatred that we will draw for doing such. And that we don't become intimidated by that hatred or, or bullied by that hatred. And look, it is, it is hard, folks, not to see the aggressive agenda that is happening in our society that is like a war against anything that is righteous or moral or spiritually good and part of God's will to try and defile everything that's moral and righteous, I mean, it's extremely difficult not to see that. You know, this past week, they just released the new Buzz Lightyear movie. My kids grew up watching the original Buzz Lightyear and, you know, cartoon movie. And, and again, I don't understand why in any cartoon you would have to have a kissing scene. Men and women, well, you don't need a kissing scene in a cartoon movie. The newest Lightyear movie, and of course, it came out during this month, of course, which our theaters are gladly uh, putting on multiple times a day, includes now a scene where two lesbian women in a relationship kiss one another in the movie. Now, why do children need to see that? This is a cartoon. I tell you why, because it's an agenda. It's a constant agenda to jam things down the throats of people, to desensitize the culture, to say, we don't want just your acceptance. You will endorse, embrace, and we will indoctrinate your children to believe our way and the way that we think and feel, and they're going to shove that down their throats like a constant attack and constant warfare. And again, this is just one of many, many episodes of what we see happening all over. You know, trying to you know, teach our children gender things and that you don't even have gender in, in kindergarten. I mean, the perversity of this, the agenda of this. The, and again, all of that stemming from there is this hatred 
of everything moral. There's this despisal of, of Christians. And I tell you, more and more, we are moving in a direction where the problem in society now is you. Because you're holding back the progressive agenda. They interviewed one of the individuals who I, apparently was in the, 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 the new Lightyear movie and basically said, they were asking, what do you think about individuals who are really not happy about this? You know, the interesting thing is Middle Eastern countries, many of them have banned this film from being shown in their theaters. Many radical Muslim countries have banned this film from being in their theaters, but not good old Christian America. We want the money behind it and we want to push the agenda right? And again, just the, the sadness and, and the tragedy of this, and as they're interviewing this individual who played in the movie saying, look, what do you think about some of the pushback and people who aren't real happy about this? And he says, I think this. I think all those who don't agree with such things and are pushing back against it, they're basically like dinosaurs, and they need to die off. They, they, they need to just die off like the dinosaurs, and the sooner they become fossils, we can move forward and they use the little catchy term, to infinity and beyond. Because this is what we do. We progress as human beings. The reality is the Bible actually teaches we digress. We digress as human beings into more and more sick and defiled things. And we're the only salt and light still on this planet. We're the only ones. And as John says here, look, understand, don't marvel. There will be hatred from the unsaved world, but look, on the other side of that, that is why, do you see, it's so important, the basis and the reason why as church family, we got a bond in love and we have to stick together because we're never gonna survive out there. If we don't continue to love one another and draw the loving support of spiritual family as we're enduring that harsh resistance, that's why God put love in our hearts for one another, because I think to a degree it's essential for spiritual survival, that we need one another. And this is the reason as well why it is so important that we come out from the world's battleground and we assemble like this for family time, because we need family time to remember who we are as we go back to our jobs and back to our neighborhoods. Romans 12 says as Christians, we must be devoted to one another in love. We must be devoted to one another in love. He says, verse 14, and we know that we've passed from death over to life because we love the brethren. And he who does not love his brother, he says, is still abiding or remaining in death. The idea here is in spiritual death. So the true characterizing mark of a spiritually converted person, notice, is the presence of God's love within their heart for the people of God that was not there prior. This is what he's telling us in verse 14. He says, one of the ways we know that we have passed, he says, verse 14, from death to life, that is to pass, and the term literally means to change from one location to another location or from one condition to another condition. The idea there spiritually, before we were saved, before we were Christian, we were still dwelling in the kingdom of darkness, right? That's where we were, that was our condition. In receiving Jesus, a spiritual change happens, and we're transitioned in our spiritual condition. Colossians 1 says, He rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. So we've now passed from the condition of spiritual death, and now we have entered into a condition of spiritual life in a relationship with Jesus Christ, and we're now part of God's family. We're now part of God's kingdom. And being a part of God's family and God's kingdom, the very life of God dwells within us. And so therefore, we find that we now love God as our spiritual father. And as we love God as our spiritual father, we also sense this love we have for God's kids, for God's family, brothers and sisters. And the Bible is saying here, this is one of the ways we can know and verify that we've experienced spiritual conversion. This is one of the ways that we can assure our hearts that we indeed have had a spiritual transition in our experience. You know, the way that we could illustrate that in natural family life, you may not like your biological family, some of you, but every human being knows that when you're born into a family, there's an innate love that parents have towards a child 
And there's this innate love that children have towards their biological parent. And, and biological families, there's this innate love because of the spiritual DNA and this bond that is there that God's wired. We innately love one another. We may not like one another. We may have issues and things get messy and complicated. But sometimes, you know, you even see people that are being horribly treated by a family member, but they still love them, right? Because it's just there. There's that innate love. Well, the Bible's saying the same is true spiritually to a much greater degree than, than, than a blood relationship, a spiritual relationship that when we are born of God and we become spiritually alive and we pass from spiritual death to spiritual life, we have this love for God innately as our father that we didn't have before we were a Christian. And all of a sudden, there's this new love we find within ourselves that we feel this camaraderie and brotherhood, and, and we, we're interested in Christians. And we see them as fellow brothers and sisters, and we sense, hey, this is my spiritual family, and there's this kinship and connection, and it's this evident change that happens in our heart that wasn't there prior to us becoming a Christian. Prior to us becoming a Christian, we didn't want to hang out with Christians and hang out with the church and be among God's people. A lot of times they convicted us and they made us feel uncomfortable and, and we didn't sense a connection or an interest in their welfare. But now when that spiritual conversion happens, there's this supernatural work within as God pours love into our hearts that's there because we've been born and we have spiritual DNA in us now. As the seed of the Holy Spirit dwells within us, we love God and we find this love for one another. First Thessalonians 4, Paul was talking to brand new Christians, a few weeks old in the Lord. And he said to them, now about your love for one another, we don't need to write to you. For you yourselves are being taught by God to love one another. In other words, what he was saying is, is we don't even need to give you a, a long teaching on loving one another as a brand new church of all these new born-again Christians. He says, because this is what we know. We know that God, by his spirit now dwelling within you, he's teaching you to love one another. In other words, he's acknowledging the fact that inwardly the Holy Spirit of God was prompting them to care about one another. He was putting this desire within them to want to show love to one another. And they just knew it was the right thing to do to exercise love and to live together as a family. First John 4, 7, he says there, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. It just happens. This new love within our heart for fellow Christians, we sense this is my family, my spiritual family. Now, that does not mean that we should not desire to be among the unsaved world, to win them to Jesus Christ to want to see them become adopted into the spiritual family and know God is their father and know Jesus as Savior. But what he's also conveying here is that if we have little interest in God's people or if we primarily want to still be with the unsaved, then what John is saying here is that may indicate maybe it's because we're still one of the unsaved. You see what he says at the end of verse 14? He who does not love his brother is still abiding, remaining in a condition of spiritual death. In other words, if there is no love for God's people, or if there's a disinterest in God's people, or if there's a dislike to be with God's people, God is saying, that's a major spiritual flag. If you say, and, and this concerns me too, I hear people, well, I love Jesus, I just don't like Christians. Can you show me what verse that is in the Bible? Was that first Fleshalonians chapter three? Jesus is the head, we're the body of Christ. The two are connected. The head's connected to the body. And, and if we have no like or no interest and we don't want to be with the family of God, something's sincerely wrong within the heart of a person like that. To the degree the Bible says it could be that lack of love is that they're actually not even converted spiritually. And that's why there's no love or interest. Again, because in the realm of darkness, there's no love of people as God intends. They view people as disposable things and will just cast them aside and ruin their lives. That's why he says, verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, that's strong language, very strong language. And the language there, again, is in the present tense. So it's speaking, listen, of a continual action. It's speaking of an ongoing practice. In essence, it could be translated, verse 15, he who can and does continually have hatred 
toward their brother, toward their sister. From God's view, he says, that's basically like committing murder. God's outlook is though you may fear the consequences of what happens if you literally murdered them, God says, in my perspective, you've already murdered them in your heart anyway. God says, if you're able to have that degree of hatred from heaven's viewpoint, you in essence have done the same thing. And let's just be very candid, if we could this morning. When, when there's ongoing hatred in our heart towards someone else, when there's ongoing hatred in a human heart, we will view and treat a person like they're dead to us. And in our conscience, we don't have a problem with that. And when we allow, as human beings, ongoing hatred to fester in our heart, we basically put a person to death in our conscience. And in our conscience, that's the end of them. I don't need them. I don't want to be in a relationship with them. I don't need to be. They're dead to me. We may not say that, but that's what's happening when there's ongoing hatred in our heart. And what the Word of God is saying here is ongoing hatred and these kind of murderous desires to put someone to death, whether literally or just relationally, he's saying here, verse 15, that's completely inconsistent with the eternal ways of life to a God who is love, to a God who is all about forgiveness and reconciliation. He says, John says here, look, we know that the ways of hatred and unforgiveness is that those aren't ways of eternal life. Something's out of whack there, he's saying. Verse 16, he then pictures that reality to a contrast. By this, he says, we know love, what it's really like, because he, Jesus, laid down his life for us. So notice God's word tells us how to understand and perceive what love really is. He says, love was perfectly displayed by the origin of love, God himself, as he came in the person of his son Jesus and lived among us on this earth to prove what love really is, to clarify and show this is what love really is. So the word of God tells us our example of love is the sacrifice of Jesus' life. He says, verse 16, this is how we can know what love is because Jesus laid down his life for us. And think of what Jesus did, right? He gave up the glory and the comfort and all the blessed paradise experience he was enjoying at heaven's throne, and he entered into this sinful, broken world in the most humble form possible as a little baby and lived in this world being the righteous son of God. He lived in this world defiled by sin, dominated by the ways of sinful people, being exposed to all of those things. And he resisted temptation to indulge sin as a child. And all through his teenage years, and all through his adult life, and as he began a public ministry of selflessly serving people, he kept giving of himself, laying down his life continuously, pouring out his life and his time and his energy in sacrificial ways to help people to heal people, to teach and to instruct people. And Jesus said he didn't come to be served, but what? To serve, to give away his life as a ransom, to help other people. Jesus did all of that, and then he ultimately endured the punishment that we deserve for our sin as he died sacrificially, a brutal death in our place as the greatest display of laying down his life for us to exercise his love. And notice that was all done, he says, there for us. In other words, it was done to make our life better. It was done for our welfare. It was done to give us what we could never obtain on our own. And the Bible is saying that's what love looks like. That's what love looks like. Not a Hallmark card. Not I feel love towards you. No, he says, this is what love looks like, saying no to oneself, denying oneself, serving, suffering, even dying to oneself to better the life of another person, to do what's in the best interest of another person or other people. And God wants us to see that, that real love in its purest form of expression is not a feeling, it is an action of sacrificial love displayed by what someone does. And Jesus was the perfect example of that. He was the embodiment of God's pure love displayed for us. And God wants us to understand that as we evaluate what love is, 
how we're to love if someone truly loves us. And this also, notice, is how we measure Jesus' love for us because he says in verse 16, by this is how we know love, his love, because he laid down his life for us. Listen, I want to point out to you this morning briefly, the Bible always points to Jesus laying down his life as the assurance of the love of God for us, not circumstances on this earth. If you try and measure circumstances on this earth in a fallen, broken world, cursed by the effects of human sin, with disease and sickness and suffering and death and hardship and toil, you're always going to wrestle with, God, if you love me, if you love me, see, you can't do that because this is a broken, defiled, messed up world. And there's going to be constant pain and hardships and problems and difficulties. That's not God's expression of love, circumstances. Nor is God's expression of love or assurance of love what is happening or what is not happening. God, if you loved me, why isn't this happening? God, if you love me, why hasn't this happened? God, if you love me, why did you let that happen? How do we tell God's love? You look at Jesus Christ laying down his life, displaying himself and what he did. That is the absolute assurance of the love of God. That's how we measure God's love. And that's what has to anchor us to know that he loves us no matter what's going on circumstantially in our lives to know if you are willing to do that for me, I know you love me. I don't understand all this, but Lord, I see that you love me. I know that you love me, and so therefore I'm gonna rest in that and let that be the thing that you did what blessed me, not now maybe, but you did what would bless me eternally, and that's what you care about for me. And that has to be the anchor of our love, and notice he says our response as people is to basically let the spirit of Jesus who lives within us rule and work through our heart now. Because he says, and we also, his followers, ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So in light of what our Lord did, seeking to follow him, we should be doing the same. The Bible teaches we have a moral and spiritual obligation to treat each other just as Jesus treated us. John 15, Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And then he said this, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. That is something we are now commanded to do to live in that way in obedience to the Lord, to express that same love of laying down our life for people who we are connected to relationally as well. Just like our Lord, we need to be willing to do the same. And listen, you don't have to strive to do it in the flesh. That won't work for me because my flesh is selfish, very selfish. But the Bible tells me that the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ lives inside of me, Christ indwelling. And if I let him rule on my heart and I say, Lord, I don't want to live. You live your life through me. He can produce and he can bring forth his love to love in that same way. And supernaturally, he can empower us to do things like he did to set aside our comforts, to deny our will, to die to ourself, to humbly serve and sacrifice, to do things to better the lives of other people, to lay down our lives to express that love. Look, both in small ways and in big ways. And what a great thing to ask yourself, what might that look like in the way that you relate to one another? as family all week long? How might that look like as we relate to each other as spiritual family? We're to be considering, Lord, how can I do that? How can I lay down my life for the brethren to show your love? He gives a practical suggestion in verse 17. Whoever has this world's goods sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart toward him. How does the love of God abide in him? So what he's saying is if we have adequate resources materially, financially, Certainly, if we have excess resources and we see a fellow spiritual family member, a brother or sister spiritually, and we can clearly tell they're struggling in sincere need, and we realize, you know, we're family. I should probably help him. 
I should probably maybe do something to assist them in some practical way. And we know that's what the love of God is prompting us to do. Yet John says, if we selfishly, because we love ourselves or we want more for ourselves, we shut up our heart and quench the spirit who's putting love in our heart, John says, how can you say the love of God's remaining in you in that moment? There's a disconnect, John's saying. We're shutting off the love of God that's trying to flow through our heart because we're rationalizing, I, I, I don't need to help them. I, it's, it's really not necessary. And John's saying here, a spiritual disconnect has happened because we've shut off the flow of love from our heart. John or James 4.17 says, if anyone knows the good they ought to do and then doesn't do it, for him it is sin. Because we cut off that flow of love that God's trying to bring through our life. Now notice, if you would too, that the instruction there to do such in verse 17, very practically, is not a general sense of obligation for all humanity, but he's talking about something we do as spiritual family. Notice he says, verse 17, he uses those terms, sees his brother in need. It's the same term he's been using all the way through, brother, brother, brother. The idea is spiritual brother, spiritual brother or sister. That this is God's calling to us. Families are supposed to take care of one another, right? That's where help is appropriate. It's what natural families are supposed to do. Well, the same is true among God's family. It is healthy and most wise stewardship to help one another as God's family because we know the situation in that family member's life. Now, that is very important because I may not, you may not, we may not always know the complex situation of why needs exist with people in the unsaved world. Perhaps they have used money foolishly. Maybe they've behaved wastefully. Maybe they're spending money selfishly. Maybe God's trying to do a work in their life to get their attention, even through financial struggle, and therefore we could actually interfere with something if we just throw money at them, if that's really not something we're supposed to do. And I'll tell you something, though at times I've been criticized over the years, if we are always giving away our money to the neighbor, we may not always be able to take care of our own family. And I believe God has called us to take care of our own family first because we know the situations and family take care of one another. And that's the right priority. And this is what he's emphasizing. He concludes verse 18 by saying, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So John concludes, let us, he said, I'm in here with you. But he says, we have to continue to work on remembering this principle that love is not just what we say verbally. It's what we do practically in our actions, in deeds, he says. My words can surely help describe and affirm the love in my heart. I'm not saying words don't have a purpose, that we should express our love. I would encourage you, read through the Gospels. Notice Jesus didn't say, I love you, to his disciples a whole lot. But they knew he loved them because of the way he related to them. And he says, love isn't just what we say in our words, but in actions and in truth. The idea is when we display love through practical actions, that is the most true and genuine expression of love. That's the most true and genuine expression. And sometimes, let's be candid, to love in accordance with truth in a proper, genuine way, to do what's best for someone, may even mean sometimes that we don't do what's easiest for someone, but we may have to do what's hard. Sometimes to truly love someone, it may take doing something hard, but yet it's exercising that kind of true love that ends up being the best thing 